Howdy, everybody, and welcome to another BP Movie Journal. I'm David. I'm Tyler. Let's talk about the stuff we've watched recently. All right. Which one of us is going to go first? We have the you exact said that, same You number. said that as though that is now your opening catchphrase. That is the... It might the, be. I, okay. I, how long have we been doing the movie journals for like six or seven months, right? Uh, I think since Didn't, December, maybe even earlier, yeah. So it's been a while. And I still haven't figured... I know I start with Howdy. Yeah. We we leave last names out of it. It's very cash. Yeah. yeah. Super cash. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but yeah, I, I haven't settled on an intro. So maybe okay. let's talk about the things we've watched recently. <laughs> is gonna Basically be the- sum up exactly what <laughs> yeah. this is. So, so who's going to go first? Should we flip a coin? Should we go... Let's go alphabetically, what? in which case you win with both first and last names. Okay. So I will go first uh, movie-wise. We haven't done these in a couple weeks, but I actually haven't seen that much stuff. What I have seen is a movie that you've seen. Okay. And I'm trying to remember if this will be on your list, or maybe you talked about this two weeks ago when we did one of these. Okay. Uh, it's The End of the Tour. Uh, yes, I, I think I talked about it last time. Okay. Yeah. Um, it's fantastic. Yeah, it's great, I right? loved it. Um, and I went in, you know, uh, the guy's last film, James Ponsel, his last film was The Spectacular Now. Which I didn't see. Which is, for the it, it has, I, I give it a strong... B plus, maybe even into A minus. Is that the movie that you, saw, that you thought was like super overrated or was that another one from that around that? Oh, time I, you're thinking of a like, uh, short term 12. That's the one. That's the one that's super yeah, yeah. overrated. No, the spectacular now is a very good movie with a really dumb framing device. Okay. That like, it's weird how sometimes small things can, uh, what are, you, what are you looking at? Oh, sorry. I was, I was responding to what looked like a prompt, but it wasn't. Sorry. Okay. Um, it's weird how sometimes a, a seemingly little thing, or in terms of runtime, a small thing, mm-hmm. can really affect how you feel about a movie. And so just the fact that there's, at the very beginning and the very end, this uh, Miles Teller's character in The spe- Spectacular Now is writing a like college application letter, mm-hmm. and that's like the framing thing. Let me ask you it something. It really bu- bugs me, and it's enough to knock it down a letter grade. By, by and large, and th- obviously this is just a guess, I feel like there's probably an episode in here. Maybe we've already done it. I don't think so, but how often would you say a framing device works and actually contributes to a story? That's a I'd good, say that's about 50%. We should do an episode on framing devices. Yeah. Yeah. You know, and that's then, a good one. I mean, then of course it's arguable, like, what is a framing device? One could say Sunset Boulevard has a framing device. Um, that's one I think that works. Yeah. Uh, you know? Yeah. So, uh, I mean, it, it does, does social network have a, a framing device? Right. Yeah. But they return to that a lot. Yeah. Like it's, or is it a parallel story? It's hard to say, but, uh, anyway, but that's, but I, that's I for like an actual sort episode of thing where, and I'm trying to think of an example off the top of my head where, it's at first it seems like it's a framing device, but then you catch up like halfway through and then yeah, it moves yeah. on. I like that a lot. And I'm trying to think of, well, there's that, this isn't the same thing of that movie scenic route had no, the thing where it. it, um, it starts with the characters all like bloodied and harried and beating the crap out of each other. And then it flashes back to them sitting on a road, on a road trip. And you're like, Oh, this is obviously yeah. not going to end well, but it's like a 90 minute movie and 45 minutes in you yeah. get to the scene that it opened with. And then it goes on from there. Yeah. This is definitely uh, I like something that, sort of that I would thing. have to research both the positive and negative, but like in general, I, re- I think back on the number of times I've said, I really like that except for the framing device. Right. And I think I say it a lot. The English patient. Well, 
I mean, I guess, yeah. <laughs> I mean, I guess uh, when I did my little re-edit, I right. took out the framing device, which involved entire characters. Um, but yeah, so. So we've done a really good job not talking about the end of the door. Yeah, sorry. Um, uh, I'm trying to remember what you said. Are you sure? I, I, I know you had seen it, but I'm trying to remember what you said about it. I might have specific because I knew it was coming up for mm-hmm. me that I was going to see it. I might have like specifically not like retained you what tu- you said, tuned me out, or just not have retained it. Okay, because I didn't want to be affected by it. Fair enough. Um, so I don't remember exactly how you felt, but it's just so it's just one great. of the things that I love about it is it, it had a lot of opportunities to go wrong. It could have made David Foster Wallace way too romantic a character, way too sage. Or it could have made him way too neurotic. But, and on top of that, it could have focused on him and only him and then used the interviewer character as just a cipher, essentially. Just a guy to represent us. But the interviewer character is just as much a character as David Foster Wallace. And it's about this very odd relationship where they're bonding, but they both understand that they have an agenda. And I love, and so like, it's... It's not an, it's almost as though like when, if you're having a, honestly, like we're having a conversation and some of our conversations can get, you know, really passionate and all that or really personal, but we are usually aware that there's, that there are microphones. So we're not always going to say exactly what we (laughs) want to say. So I don't know. It's so that tension I thought was really great and and perfectly executed. Well, let's tie uh, to go back to what we were just talking about. I think this is there is a framing device here mm-hmm. uh, that I think actually really works because I like that. I think um, the other David Jesse Asberg's character—I yeah. forget his last name—Lipsky is that it? Something like that. Yeah. Um, I think he is, and we've always talked about like what makes a protagonist what makes a main character and yeah. it's the one who has the arc yeah. you know and i think he does jace Eisenberg's character has more of an arc oh yeah but what i like about it, uh, that i think the framing device works is without really laying on it too heavy you kind of get the impression that the things that he learned from this weekend with david foster wallace he didn't learn at the time yeah, you know what I mean. No, it's it's a thing that when you like, look back, you're like, he, "Oh my gosh, what about?" Yeah, I, yeah. Because he, the character, I mean, he's clearly affected by this, but he's like really guarded and has a sense of um, uh, envy about David Foster Wallace because yeah. they're both, you know, he wants to be a famous novelist yeah. as well, and so there's, uh, I feel like he he doesn't get free of his own bullshit enough in the weekend, right? And that's why the framing device works because you see that like um, how maybe he did eventually learn some lessons yeah um from this weekend yeah uh, he anyway. retroactively learns lessons yeah uh, well, okay so i think i might have said this last time did you happen to see who that composer was wait uh i did and i thought of it but i i've forgotten who was it's it? danny elfman danny elfman yes I, I knew it was someone that was like what and it's not i mean and that's the thing you know like we all know what danny elfman's music sounds like yeah. and this doesn't sound like him and so part of me is like good for like good for him for getting away from that. But then part of me is like, what are you doing? Danny Elfman? Like <laughs> what? Just be yourself. And like, this, this, you, do you not like the music? I love the music. I, like I think it's really effective, but it just like, it just felt like, and then, uh, when I saw the unknown known, did you see that? No, that's also music by Danny Elfman trying very, very hard to approximate Philip glass. Yeah. That's weird. And yeah, I think you, I remember you mentioned that at the time. And this feels like Danny Elfman, maybe not trying to be a specific composer, but trying to emulate 
what scores for the last few years have been kind of just these tones. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's not bad cause it's effective. He made a very, eff- he composed a very effective score. So I'm torn on it because I was just like, I feel like he didn't bring any, any of himself to it, but does he need to, mm-hmm. I don't know. It's uh, something to ask uh, West Anthony. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and finally we'll say, uh, I think Jason Siegel's amazing. I think he like, uh, you know, I watched years of how I met your mother and, mm-hmm. and I've seen other Jason Siegel movies. That's kind of what I think of him as Marshall first. And so I did initially have this ac- reaction of like, wow, he's so not being Marshall right now. And by the end of his first scene, I had just forgotten who it was. It's just David Foster Wallace to me. It's a fantastic performance. I was worried it was going to be a little bit too mannered. Um, and in the first scene, it takes you a minute to get used to like cadence and like, okay, he's going to be wearing that bandana. He's got long hair. Like, but then if there are any mannerisms, an argument could be made that they are David Foster Wallace. Yeah. Yeah. Putting them on and not necessarily Jason Siegel. Yeah. So there's uh, man, there's a lot going on with that movie. And I also, the last thing I want to say about it does a great job. I think of feeling like a Midwestern winter. Hmm. Yeah. <laughs> Which is not an easy thing. Um, <laughs> it seems very cold. And it has, I didn't know, I, I, it's obviously those two, uh, Jesse, Eisenberg, Jesse Eisenberg and uh, Jason Siegel, but also um, one of Meryl Streep's daughters. Uh, I don't know if it's Mamie or Grace. I always I forget. I believe it's Mamie. Um, Joan Cusack. Yeah, I really liked her. And then uh, I'm suddenly forgetting her name, Becky Ann Baker, who's the mom from uh, Freaks and Geeks and also the mom, Hannah's mom on Girls. She uh, has a very small role. She's I haven't the, really seen either one. She's the woman at the bookstore that David Foster Wallace asks, oh, okay. do, do you have any artificial spit? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and I still don't know if it's a real thing or if he was fucking with her. Anyway, uh, what's next for you? So I saw Jurassic World. Okay. And I won't go into it very much here because I spent 30 minutes uh, talking about it on more than one lesson as, a, as its own mini-sode. Just you or you and Josh? Just me. Oh, you had a lot to get off your chest? I did, actually. <laughs> uh, so it's no, I mean, it's no secret that uh, the film, every review has mentioned it, you can see it in the trailer, that it's kind of a little bit of a commentary on where movies have come in okay. since the first Jurassic park. They're like, well, dinosaurs aren't enough. Now we got to do all this other stuff. Yeah. Okay. All right. That's fine. And then reviews mention that and then they move on. I think the movie goes so much deeper than that. I have such tremendous admiration for how Uh-oh. deep it is willing to go into not even meta, but like commentary on, on our relationship with movies past and present. Um, studios relationship with movies, artists relationship with movies, movies relationship to each other as feeling of responsibility to the past, as opposed to a sense of exploiting the past. It, it's, uh, Hey, I was surprised <laughs> too when I started thinking these things. And every time I was about to like push that aside and be like, you're being ridiculous, Tyler, you're, it's Jurassic world. Uh, every time I was about to push that aside, here comes something else that only confirms it over uh. and over to me. So if you want to hear me talk for 30 minutes, giving examples, and there's a lot of spoilers in there, by the way. Um, okay. Good to know. If you want to, if you want to hear me go into more detail, you can go to more than one lesson.com 30 minutes of me, uh, sounding like a crazy guy on a street corner. Yeah. You so. should post it on the website. Okay. Um, what about Jimmy Buffett? That part's funny. Okay. Um, and, and you know what? And the movie itself, I mean, uh, Jen really loved it. And there are parts that are actually very, very effective. Uh, 
And what's interesting is that, yes, there are moments when it is a creature feature, but by and large, it feels more like a, uh, like a disaster film. Oh, okay. Um, like San Andreas or something like that, more than, I don't know, just by upping the scale you now see like the way this impacts crowds and stuff like that. Whereas in the first film, it's always like one or two people versus a dinosaur or something like that. So, um, so I found that interesting that it starts to change genres, um, which again is, is sort of, uh, one of the things that they're doing with, with this, uh, new dinosaurs. They're mixing all these different things. And this right. is a film that mixes, uh, different genres and stuff like that. And I never saw, what do you call it? Uh, safety not guaranteed. Did you see it? Yeah. Did you like it? Uh, it's above average. Okay. I think it um, starts off feeling very much like the type of like uh, 21st century Sundance aimed indie that I would hate. Okay. Uh, and, but it develops quite a bit of heart and um, personality as it goes on. And, I and th- so I like the way that's where it ended up. Well, and that's the thing. I have not seen it, but I've heard enough about it, both positive and negative, to know that, like, well, at the very least, Colin Trevorrow is not somebody that's going to phone things in. And I could see him using the opportunity to actually explore these things, you know, uh, especially. And Steven Spielberg was heavily involved as an executive producer, and I think he's somebody who has, uh, who's who's willing to let Colin Trevorrow explore this. So. I don't know. Um, it's boy. Is it was Trevorrow? That's how I've been saying it. Okay. So yes, because it could be Trevorrow. Trevorrow. <laughs> but then I think of Alec Baldwin <laughs> on on Saturday Night Live. <laughs> Hello, this, this is, is Colin De- Trevorrow. <laughs> this, this is Devereaux. This is Colin Trevorrow. <laughs> <laughs> um, okay, I think we should move on. Yeah. Um, I saw a film. Um, Speaking of Sundance Indies, I was all primed to not like this movie. Okay. No, I, I actually that's not true. This is a movie I went and paid to see. Um, I say that like I deserve a fucking medal for paying yeah. to go see a movie. <laughs> I do it a lot, but um, uh, I went and saw a movie that has a bad title, but uh, I wanted to see it. It's called Infinitely Polar Bear. Oh, okay. Um, or were you gonna? You thought I was gonna say Me and Earl and the yes. Dying Girl? Yes. Yeah. Give me fifty bucks and pay for the price <laughs> of the movie, then I'll go see Me and Earl and the Dying Girl. Ugh. I feel like I need uh. to see it on principle now. <laughs> um, so yeah, no, I saw infinitely polar bear. <clears throat> Do you ever feel like, I feel like, it, I feel like I'm wrong for feeling this way. Okay. But sometimes there are movies that I like, but I, then I feel like if I'm not reviewing this, I'm just, I was just seeing this for my pleasure. If I were reviewing it, I'm not saying I would dislike it. I would probably still like it, but I would probably, in order to fill the 700 words or whatever, would probably end up finding myself locating more things to not like about it. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, it's. It, I, I you know what I actually had this feeling with a movie that we'll talk about later, where I had this thought of like, oh, thank God I don't have to review this because I don't want to put the energy into it because if I put more energy into the into articulating my feelings. Yeah then this film is not going to do well or it will wind up doing better uh, yeah. or whatever. So uh, I'm probably going to talk myself down. Uh, you know, this is a movie that I would give a, a solid B and it might have gone down to a C plus if I had to review it. And okay. I'm going to talk myself down to a C plus, but no, it's really, I mean, I'm a guy, I've heard we, the title. What's it even about? So it's, um, based, it's a fictionalized account of the, 
director Maya Forbes of her actual childhood being um, raised for 18 months. She and her sister being raised for 18 months by their manic depressive dad okay. alone. He was a, a single father and manic depressive in the 70s, late 70s in Boston. <clears throat> Excuse me. Uh, and so Mark Ruffalo plays the dad. Zoe Saldana plays the mom who um, basically they... At one point, they live together, but then he has a mental... This is all in the very beginning. They, they all live together as a family. He has a breakdown and goes and is institutionalized, and so they move into the city, the mom and the two daughters, uh, into an apartment. Then he gets out, and their marriage isn't great, and she, they also don't have any money, and she gets accepted into a business school in New York City. So she's like, if I, okay. if I go through the summer and do this, I can get my degree, my like graduate degree in 18 months. Okay. I just, and so she says, I just need you for 18 months. <laughs> I'll come home on weekends, but for 18 months, you have to raise our daughters. And that's yeah. it. So it's sort of, it doesn't really, the movie doesn't even really have a story so much as it has a time frame. <laughs> this yeah, yeah. is the 18 months. And I like that. <clears throat> but what I really, the first thing I felt when the movie was over, you know, we, we did a whole episode about run times and, mm-hmm. I feel like I'm very sensitive to if a movie is dragging at all. Yeah. But this movie is 90 minutes and there was a, there was a time probably about in retrospect, it was probably about 75 minutes in when it suddenly occurred to me, Oh, this thing's wrapping up and it yeah. feels like, I mean, the movie flies by and to me, is that to its credit or do you to feel its like, credit. Okay. yeah, no, to its, I think that's one of the great thing. Greatest things a movie can do is not feel like time is passing, mm-hmm. you know? Um, or not feel like, I mean, obviously time is passing. Right. It's an exaggeration, but not uh, feel like it's taking too long. Yeah. Um, so, uh, you know, anything that you might be able to say about, is this, is this movie, is Mark Ruffalo's performance a little too arch? Or is this movie not romanticizing, but uh, quirkifying his <laughs> manic depression? And there are times that it flirts with that. Yeah. But um, it it has such fantastic forward momentum that 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 overcomes a lot. I mean, I almost feel like I feel like it sounds like I'm making excuses, but that's what filmmaking is. It's Mm -hmm. a, it's a fourth, four dimensional art form. It it needs to take place over a certain amount of time. And if you can master that passage of time, you're most of the way there. I think as far as a, as a filmmaker, you know, the, the more a movie feels like it's moving and keeps you up going and it keeps, keeps you in its, in its wake and it's, uh, it's thrall the less time you have to worry about stuff that might not be working and so to me that's i uh, it's half the battle i got a uh back in school um in a screenwriting class i got a compliment that at the time didn't mean a lot to me from my teacher and in retrospect i'm like oh that was a good one (laughs) um and she said you know what she's like she said the stuff that i already in some cases i already knew that i'm I'm pretty good at character and and dialogue but she's like you're also you know when the scene should end She's like, you know exactly when it should end. If it were to end earlier, it would seem premature. If it went longer, it would seem unnecessary. Like, you have an instinct for when it should end. And I remember at the time being like, all right. Uh-huh. In retrospect, I'm like, absolutely. Since I've done, like, some low-level script consulting work, I'm like, absolutely. <laughs> absolutely. So, yeah, it just like. Now that- you see, so you admit you're great at that. <laughs> well, no, I just mean, I just mean that like, that's, there's no question that's a compliment. Oh, right, um, right. Yeah. And so, uh, and yeah, just someone who understands how to, how to pay, how to pace a movie just right, because that will dictate our emotional response to it. Like it's, it's invaluable. Mm-hmm. 
And there are times when I feel like a movie needs to be longer because like, Oh, you've paced this too short for the story you're telling. Um, for example, uh, well, for a bunch of, for a bunch of reasons, that's how I felt with, uh, Oh shit. Angelina Jolie film. It's not unbreakable. Uh, in the land of blood and honey. That's the one (laughs) (laughs) wanted. No, it's, she directed it. It's, it came out last year. Oh, Oh, Oh yeah. Unbroken. Unbroken. Is that it? I feel like it's called unbroken. Okay. The fact that we don't remember this should speak yeah. volumes, but like that's no, one I'm, where I'm, I'm like 98% sure it's called unbroken. Unbroken. Cause I thought that unbreakable. Right. Yeah. yeah. And I was like undefeatable. No, I think that's a different movie. Damn it. Unforgiven. Picture like the cover. He's holding up the, yeah, yeah. like unbroken. Beam. I think it's that's unbroken. Yeah. Um, you should look it up while we're talking. I'm not going to, um, I'm looking at baseball scores, uh, <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> Way to be real present. <laughs> I can but, do uh, multiple but things that's, at once. I'm a millennial. Uh, <laughs> is that what we are officially? I think we are at the like older end of. Fair enough. I'll, take, I'll both, take what I can get. Because I've heard I, we're I not heard, Gen X. No, too too young for Gen X. But I've heard I heard someone describe millennials as I can't remember what the ending point was, but starting within the Reagan administration, we were both born eighty two for me. Yeah, so 82 for me, too. Okay, later, yeah. so we were both born yeah. during Early the Reagan on. administration, so I think we are millennials. All right. I That's think. exciting. Yeah. My brother is, is Gen X. Um, so, uh, but what I was saying is that, like, yeah, Unbroken, like, that's a movie that I thought should be longer because I felt like, you know, I, good for you for wanting to respect my time, but you know what? Two hours and 20 minutes is fine as opposed to two hours when this guy has so much more story to tell. Okay. Um, which is not just a matter of pacing, but that's, you know, maybe if, if like, if you wanted to make a two hour movie, maybe spend a little bit less time with this other stuff, which I understand why you'd want to spend time on it. But the story isn't over just because the quote unquote exciting things are done. Um, the things that are unusual that people don't understand and haven't experienced. But anyway, that's another thing. Um, okay, so we we should move on, but I'll say, I mean, this is mostly, Zoe Saldana is in the movie a lot, but it's mostly Mark Ruffalo and the two girls showcase. Mm-hmm. And this is a topic of discussion maybe to have at some point, but, and I, I've said before that I'm bad at talking or writing about acting. Okay. But I subconsciously, I don't know if this is right or wrong. When an adult actor is good in a movie, I say that adult actor did a good job. Mm-hmm. When child actors are good in a movie, my instinct is the director knew what to do. Do yeah. you know what I mean? Uh, yeah. Because the two the two girls in this movie are fantastic, and like if they weren't, it really would have hurt the movie because it's right. these three a ton of the time. And you know, there's uh, you know, there's a part that is such a like he does something that embarrasses them, and then it like cuts to them in the car driving away, and the older girl is like, "Dad, that was so embarrassing." Yeah, and it's like a pretty cliched type of scene, yeah. but it's hilarious because of the editing and because the girl's so good. Um, but I do have a tendency to say way to go. Maya Forbes director. Yeah. You really got great performances out of those two young. Well, young I think girls. because naturally we look at younger actors and we think, well, what do they have to draw from in life? An older actor can say, Oh, I remember in my own life, right. you know, and my, and I've felt all I've run the, I've run the gamut of emotions in my own life. I've been around for 40 years or whatever. Um, whereas, Kid but that's kids been around aren't for generally s- playing characters who have 
been to war or whatever. The characters right. have had as much life experience as they have. Right. In but terms of chronology, at least. Well, I guess I'm thinking in terms of somebody like Freddie Highmore in Finding Neverland or Haley Joel Osment, like where uh-huh. they need to branch out maybe right, a little right. bit, but they do wonder, they do great, you know? And so, uh, so I think like, where are you pulling this from? Or is it just, is it a genuine just imagination at this point? Like you're just imagining what you would feel like if right. this were the case and they do a great job with it. And, and I do John, I do genuinely think that while the kid is undoubtedly talented, um, I do feel like it takes a certain kind of director to pull that out. Well, Mario Forbes did a great job. What's next for you? Next for me is inside out. All right. Let's Absolutely. talk about how great inside out is. All right. It is not my favorite movie. I think it's like number seven. Um, Look, are you just being contrarian? That's my role. No, not at all. Because it's my number one movie of the year so far. I responded greatly to it. You're absolutely right with the character Bing Bong, voiced by Richard Kind. He's wonderful. Um, as is a lot of the other stuff. I, I It's a really nice, complete world, and, and uh, I think it's very creative the way the way it needs to be. The way, Honestly, the way stuff like Monsters, Inc. and Cars and Toy Story where... It's like, okay, well, what is the, what is the equivalent? Like the stuff that we have in our world, what is the equivalent in their world? What does that look like? And I think they do a great job with that. Pete Doctor, I think, is very good at that sort of thing. Um, I had an emotional reaction. Obviously, I welled up several times, as people do. Oh, I, think. I had, I mean, I won't say what the moment is, because it would be a spoiler. But there's certain movies, like, It's a Wonderful Life, mm-hmm. right? When he like comes back to the bridge and reaches into his pocket and finds Zuzu's pedals, yeah. from that point to the end of the movie, that's the part that I cry at. That okay. whole and so there is a point in Inside Out where it was like just a uh, a switch was flipped, yeah. and I was just like crying the rest of the movie. Just a just a blob of tears. <laughs> yeah, Niagara Falls. <laughs> a weird reference to make. <laughs> Uh, I mean, I guess, I guess, yeah, if you've seen Scrooge, you're always going to remember David Johansson saying Niagara Falls. To me, that's like, okay, this is off topic a little bit, but you know, I'm a huge fan of the best show with Tom Sharpling. Uh, And I, one of the things I love about Tom Sharpling and the best show is that in his mind or in the world of the best show, the movie falling down is like Forrest Gump. It's like a movie. (laughs) He references it all the time as if it's just a movie that everyone knows back to front. And to me, I like the idea that Scrooge is like, I have to explain a Scrooge reference. Everyone's seen Scrooge. Then I can just, that's how I feel. Has that become like a Christmas, maybe not a classic, but is that a a movie that people are, I think people are aware of it, right? I think, but I honestly, part of me feels that there's like a really, there's a really small age group. Yeah. Because I think it was a PG 13 movie. Yeah. So I think there are some people younger than us who were too young for it. And I also think for squares who were older than we were, it's a little too weird. Critics didn't dark. like it. Yeah. yeah. They thought it was really cynical and they didn't think it was appropriate for Christmas. Yeah. Which is ridiculous. Yeah. I mean, but people felt that way about a Christmas story too. And that, so I think sometimes there needs to be a lag of people being yeah. like, get over yourself. Meanwhile, both. Yeah. And meanwhile, this has such like a, tre- a treacly ending. Yeah. That, uh, I feel like it um, redeems it. Yeah. But I think there is a, a certain sweet spot of age of a few years where Scrooge, Scrooge is just one of the, one of the Christmas classics. And I'm certainly in. Yeah, me too. It's right. uh, so yeah. Um, so yeah, I responded to it and I, and I love what it's trying to do that. It's talking about the gaining of perspective that things aren't just black and white or if you will, yellow and or blue uh-huh. or green or red or purple. Like they, 
that the older you get and the more experience you have in life, the more you understand that everything is is a mixture of things. You know, like okay. uh, in my own life, for example, like there are times when I think like like oh man, like for example, before my dad died, man, things were great then. And then I thought, and this isn't a specific memory, but it's yes, but I didn't even know that Jen existed mm-hmm. yet. You know, and it's like that's okay. so. Who knows what? Like, so I'm thinking back to a one aspect of a happier time, but it was, but I wouldn't. I didn't have this other thing, and okay. so, so that's a general thing. But then there are well, any number of specific memories of like an event that are bittersweet. I think. Okay. What? Did, uh, sorry. What is the point you're making exactly? about inside out right now. Oh, just that like, I still responded to it very favorably and I still Uh was invested in it. Um, but oddly enough, I did not, I did not respond to it as, uh, I was about to say as bigly, Oh, good God. As, as grandly, grandly, uh, as, as some, uh, I, the word masterpiece has been thrown around. I would not say that, um, uh, I think it's very effective and there are, time. there are a couple of things that, uh, made me actually, uh, uh furious, but, but <laughs> well, okay, we'll get to those in a second unless they're spoilery because they're uh, they not, um, but is your, is your argument that it's too simplistic? No, not at all. Okay. Cause I didn't understand what you were saying about like things being black and white or blue and yellow. No, I'm saying that like when you're that young, the movie gets it right. Yeah. Gets yeah. Right. Okay. When that's, you're that's young, I was tripped up like these characters only, th- you know, the, the, the emotion characters, they only see things like you look at the marbles, it's yellow or blue or whatever. And then as you get older, right. as, as they get older and they look at these memories, they see that they're, they're a swirl. Right. Um, okay. As, as life is. So. All right. So what, what made you furious? <laughs> All right. So here's the deal. You're going to give me shit about it and I don't care. I might not I'm have gonna, the energy. And okay. <laughs> right, well, let's hope that's the case. Uh, and listeners might give me shit about it and I don't have the energy to, uh, convince people that I am correct. Um, this has been a thing, a thorn in my side since, in, since high school. All right. One thing that I really like about the film is that we are able to see other people's control rooms. A little bit, yeah. A little bit. We get a glimpse of it. And I think what I like about that is it shows that, like, yeah, yeah, it's not just this person. Everybody has this. Right. You know, it's, it, it humanizes other characters. So I like that a lot. Um, and I also like the idea that, you know, no, like theoretically no one emotion is sort of in control but the one that's in the middle tends to be sort of in charge and okay. for the little girl it's joy but for other characters it might be something else for the mom it's sadness mm-hmm. for the dad it's anger uh at the end we see like it's it's like a montage it's like a, a humorous montage but is something that actually spoke to me a great deal was like there is this like high school girl who was trying to be like real cool it goes into her and fear is what drives her and is wondering like, am I, I'm such a fraud and stuff like that. Right. And like, that's that. Oh boy. As, as a cool person, I can tell you that's, that's true. Oh, no, no question true. about it. Uh, but the thing that gets, so I like that uh, a lot. Um, but when we go inside, okay, just get to it. When we go inside, people are going to keep people <laughs> listening at home. Think, did the podcast just cut out? Cause you keep like stopping like full stop. You have heard me say this before. All right. And you always give me shit for it. Okay, I'm on the edge of my seat. 
when we go inside the dad and he's fucking thinking about sports and then he gets accused of not listening and he's like, what? Oh, wait, what? What did I leave the toilet seat? Are you fucking kidding me? (laughs) This film is operating at a much higher level than those horseshit jokes. All right. And then we cut inside the mom and oh, they're allowed to fantasize about this, uh, this uh, beautiful island Adonis. It's like, fuck you. Uh, it just it angers me so I'm much. Like, what is it's making like, I, like are, is it it's just such a because it seems like it's, it's such uh, a CBS sitcom. Okay, and I agree. And my wife had the same complaint. Okay, but, glad to hear it. Uh, 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 but it didn't. <laughs> I don't understand what you're so angry about. I'm so angry because I do think the film is intelligent. But then when it comes down to like cli- total cliches like that, it's like really you're gonna buy it. You're gonna you're gonna play into that. Think of this. I was talking with da- with uh, Jason about this. I, I'm okay. I'm okay. I don't. I'm not. I don't have a problem with the fact that like the dad's primary control emotion is anger. Uh-huh. I'm okay with that. But think how how much more poignant it would be if we went inside the dad and the controlling emotion is fear, and he's thinking about his job, and he's because we've seen him on the phone. He's clearly really stressed okay. out. If that's what's distracting him instead of fucking sports. And then he's like, Oh, did I leave the toilet seat? Are you come on? I just don't know. why. like, the movie isn't about this character. So I right. understand that it's like, yes, that's that scene that, 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 that back and forth between his, the dad's head and the mom's head. It's a misstep. And that's why I, maybe why I haven't used the word masterpiece. Cause it okay. is, it definitely is a misstep, but we don't need, it's okay. I just, I'm okay with it being jokey because it's not about these characters, but I'm with you. that I wish the jokes were better and not reliant on these cliches. And some of the other jokes are so good. That's the thing. But that sequence is uh, like 20 seconds. It comes and goes. It's, it's over before it starts, but it's very, like it is, it was very notable to me because it really seemed like they were going for a very obvious joke. And also like, but they they were, and and they deserve to be dinged for that. Okay. And I'm, it shouldn't like, I mean, this goes back to what I was saying about uh, a framing device ruining a whole movie for me. Like, I understand sometimes a small thing can mess up a whole movie. For this you, is not what this is a keeps really the movie. small thing. And that's the thing. Like, imagine. I mean, imagine like one of the smartest comedies you've ever seen, and then there is just a big old fart joke right there. Uh-huh. Now, don't get me wrong. Well, like blazing saddles, <laughs> but like it's, you know, stuff like, I mean, you don't like those jokes and you're like, I didn't, I thought we were doing something different than this. And but then it goes back to being good. It goes back to being good. Absolutely. So, and then of course the little girl meets a boy at the uh-huh. end and then there's another joke and all the characters, all the emotions in the boy are just like, it's a girl, it's a girl. What do we do? What do we do? It's like. <laughs> Come on, people. I don't know why this bothers you so it much. It bothers me because so much because it's like, like, I, like, I agree with you, except your dial is turned up to 10 on this and mine's at one and a half. It just, it pushed it. There are very specific buttons. Uh-huh. It could be that horrible Cheerios commercial from years ago where it's, it's like a multi-grain Cheerios thing okay. where like the, the husband is like oh are you on a diet like asking his wife because like well they're multi-grain cheerios they're healthy are you on a diet and then she just starts tearing into him and it's supposed to be funny <laughs> and then like it's just and then okay, stuff like that, stuff that like, like king of queens stuff like everybody loves raymond various types of stand-up and it just like and it's a thing it's a very specific button 
it very much it's almost that that idea of like not all men it's like not only am am i do i strive not to be like i've i've caused problems in my marriage by so by being so terrified of becoming that person uh-huh. all right because i get so neurotic about it so that it very much touches a thing for me but is that why you don't like sports just because you don't want to fit into a stereotype <laughs> <laughs> that's it oh i i love football so much but i can't let I can't anybody know to the world exactly oh if only i could come out and say i love football so um but no it's it, that's the thing it's not that big of a deal except in that moment for, so that's that's my personal issue although it makes me feel good that natalie also took note of it that okay, it yeah, doesn't come I, from my wife indeed yes sorry um I don't usually use her name and I don't know why. Well, on the other show, I mean, it's Mrs. Howell. It's Mrs. Howell. Yeah. Yeah. But if people look into that, then which they won't, Um, (laughs) but, uh, so that's okay. That's my own personal button. But if I, if I look at it from an artistic standpoint, it's just like, this is a film that embrace is a, that's about embracing nuance and perspective. And yes, these are supporting characters. So I'm, I'm, I'm more willing to go with it, but in these supporting characters, the fact that the mom's driving emotion is sadness speaks volumes. Mm-hmm. The fact that the dad's right overriding emotion is anger, I think is a little bit condemning of him. And then when I don't think so, I don't know. It As just someone seems... whose driving emotion is anger, I, I think it's okay. <laughs> well, and I was know... joking before about being cool, but <laughs> that's true. Like I do feel like everything, every emotion that I feel other than joy, every negative emotion I feel gets channeled through anger, and that's how it that's how it expresses itself. And so I don't think it's condemning. I think it's realistic. Do you, do you find yourself? I'll say this for to the film's credit. I think it's a, it a, it's a film that that invites you to ask questions about yourself. Like, what is the overriding emotion? What is the one? Obviously, they're all there. Uh-huh. Obviously, anger's there for me. Right. Um, but which is the one that's that sort of dictates orders? For me, it's probably fear. If we're, if we're buying into the film's premise of sure, being these sure. five, yeah, yeah. If you had to fit into one of these five categories, okay, yeah, it's anger for me. Yeah, and for me, it is undoubtedly fear, um, with uh, sadness being probably a pretty solid first mate. Yeah, I'd um, say yeah, anger and sadness are definitely yeah and that, of course this sounds better. all very very sad but i'm still capable of joy and all these other yeah. things and i've got plenty of disgust you really do yeah obviously I, yeah uh you definitely don't like wouldn't you wouldn't eat broccoli pizza Ugh. would you no i don't know if i've ever had pizza with broccoli on it i don't you know but what? You'd, I wouldn't, you'd be open to it if, if i don't know because i don't like okay we're done with inside out now we're moving on to broccoli i'm sorry for having so uh, extreme a reaction it's just it, I, but I, I just I, I i understand there are things that touch me that that have set me off yeah. too this one i i i felt the same things you felt i was just able to go back to the movie when the movie went back to the movie all right this isn't the this isn't a, a perfect parallel a long time ago when we had will anderson on for the first time we were talking about crocodile dundee a movie that you liked and thought it was very funny right up until that moment where it shames oh, the, yeah, the, the cross-dresser. Per, yeah. Or, yeah, yeah. Or I don't exactly know they how they would have described it at the time. That word, yeah. um, and just like, and it really does, like the humor is at that person's expense. Yeah. The movie then goes back to being the movie, but I'm, but in yeah. that moment you were very angry and you thought, oh, come on. Yeah. Well, yeah. No, I get it. You know. Yeah. So there are things that are different for different people. Yeah. Oh, broccoli. Here, here's Indeed. the thing. I like a lot of crazy stuff in my pizza. Uh, but I, and I like broccoli in general. I've never liked the broccoli and cheese mixture. 
a lot of people do. Oh, people like, love it. Yeah. Yeah. And I've, it's never, I, I don't like that. So I don't think I would like broccoli on pizza unless it were like a pizza without cheese, which I've, I've seen. <laughs> That's just uh, tomato bread. <laughs> <laughs> um, I've also had pizza with cashew cheese, which I did not like. I don't even, I didn't even know that was a, a real thing. It's a vegan cheese okay. substitute. And I have liked cashew cheese in the past, but, um, this one place, I won't say the name of the restaurant. I don't want to put them out, put out of business, uh, with the power that I hold over restaurants Obviously. here. But, uh, yeah, my wife and I, um, went to this vegan restaurant like last summer and she loved the place. She was raving about it mm-hmm. and we got a pizza and it had, cashew cheese yeah and it was the worst i still like i won't let her live it down like yeah just let's not go you pick the place let's just never go to that place again let me let me ask you this as somebody who used to be vegan and it's been a long time yeah since you've been vegan but um and this might even sound judgmental but it's more just as someone that has never been vegan like and i live in los angeles so i know a lot of vegans at this point but like has there ever been a situation where you just come to realize that, all right, I'm vegan, so I guess I'm just not going to have this thing. Like, the idea of, of well, I'm vegan, so I guess I'm not going to have bacon. Like, it seems like there's a vegan substitute for everything. But they're never but as people, good. They're never as good. So it's just like, and okay, so, well, I'm not going to. Yeah, gonna, and that's what, when I was. This thing's off the, off the books now. When I did spend some time as a vegan in high school, I didn't, like, mess with a lot of, like, replacement foods i never liked them um and now i've got like there are some things that i like on their own um like uh there's a well it's closed now there used to be a vegan uh vietnamese place near my old apartment in hollywood that would have uh much it's i don't think it's not pronounced satan it's like satan okay and it's essentially just like wheat gluten like condensed into like to be to have a texture that is not dissimilar to chicken, okay. but it doesn't taste like chicken at all, right. but it's good on its own. if made right and with the right seasoning and stuff. And so I like, there, there are times there are things that I like yeah. on their own like that, you know, but, uh, in general, I still don't like a lot of the replacement foods. Yeah. The exception to the rule is a chain here in Los Angeles that I hope expands because it's the greatest thing in the world. It's called the veggie grill and it's all vegan, okay. but it's all like, you know, Buffalo chicken burgers and like yeah. all kinds of like stuff that does, that wouldn't be, vegan. it was all replacement yeah. food, but they're so delicious. I don't know what they're putting in it, but it's, uh, it's amazing. I hope veggie grill, uh, expands. What? I guess the reason that I ask is I think because like, for example, from time to time I'll do like Atkins. Okay. Which means I'm giving up things mm-hmm. like it's very low carb, like pizza's out, bread in general is out. Yeah. And so, I'm trying, so uh, I could spend my time thinking like, all right, is there like an Atkins type of bread? Is there a way to have bread without it being the type of bread that is bad for me? Or, or, but rather than put that, the energy into that, it's like, all right, so I guess I'm just not having this. Yeah, that's. And I'm not, I'm not saying like vegans are trying to like have their cake and eat it too. They're vegan cake. Um, right. They're egg free cake. Yeah. <laughs> but um, like, I'm not trying to be negative about it, but it's just like, I've never experienced that. And there does seem to be a big industry of like food that vegans want, but won't let themselves have. And so they'll take a much more inferior version of it. <laughs> That's an interesting way of putting it. Uh, you have to talk to, well, my wife is not vegan. She's vegetarian. Okay. But, um, right. 
Yeah, she eats a lot of fake meats. She'll eat those eggs all day long. Yeah, she likes eggs and cheese. Eggs and cheese. There we go, man. Um, let's move on. Yeah, um, sorry. I, I'm sorry well, for getting. Okay. I'm sorry for getting so passionate about uh, Inside Out. By the way, but, about well, that. Why would you? Why would you be sorry about that? Well, about that. I, I mean, I literally yelled "fuck you" into the mic. Right. Maybe that's yeah. not the best. Yeah, um, I'm sure the listeners uh, were a little jarred by yeah. that, um, and they knew that I was talking specifically to them. Yeah. <laughs> um, Let's move on to we we won't we spent too long on veganism so we won't spend too long on this movie. Uh it's a dog movie. It just came out in theaters. It's called Max. Okay. Um and I saw it and it's got a awesome dog at the center and it's like 2 hours of this dog being awesome and that's worthwhile to me. Okay. The movie itself is really stupid. Like okay. more stupid than you think it is. Is this like is this like War Dog? Is he like in War? I no, forget. that's only at the beginning. So okay. the premise is that he is a Marine dog who okay. like sniffs out explosives and firearms and stuff with oh, this right. Marine uh, group in Afghanistan. And then in an ambush, the Marine who is the dog's handler is killed um, in Afghanistan. And the dog, the dog itself essentially ends up with post-traumatic stress disorder, whatever the dog equivalent is. Um, and the Marines are going to have to put the dog to sleep, mm-hmm. and the family of the killed, the slain Marine takes the dog in. Yeah. Uh, and so it's really about the son of the Marine who died, or not the son, the little brother of the Marine who died, who's like, he's like a <laughs> juvenile delinquent. The movie's so... Oh, boy. Of course so he is. Corn- yeah, but it, like... It also, uh, I'd be interested to see your point of view on it, because, okay, we are going to end up talking about this more than I thought, because there is something that is weird to me. Okay. But it's weird to me because I'm not a Christian. Oh, uh, well, boy. All right. The, the family is Christian. I mean, stands to reason you see, I mean, you see them go to church, but you just hear it in their words and the things they say, um, at the beginning. And there's something, it's sort of like you and I, I won't say who, but, um, I attended a wedding that you were at recently. Oh Yes. And during the like um, toasts or during the vows, mm-hmm. I would be really into it emotionally, and then it would veer into being very specifically about God or Jesus, and it takes me out because it's so f- foreign to me. Right. And so this family, who are the protagonists of the movie, every once in a while I'd be like just yanked out of the movie because of something that is probably to a whole other sub like a whole yeah. other section of Americans makes the family more endearing. Does it, does it uh, yank you out in, in a negative way? Like that you're just like, Oh, I don't like this. Or is it just, I'm not familiar with Yeah, it. This is foreign. To okay. Me. Yeah. Um, uh, yeah, it's, yeah, it doesn't make them make them evil or right. whatever. Um, uh, but it just, it is distancing. But uh, I guess I don't really have a problem with it. Um, what I do have a problem with is just how how stupid the movie becomes. Because you think, it, oh, it's a boy and his dog movie. But it, then it turns into, like, there's, like, people get killed in it. And there's, like, gun running. And there's, like, I was going to ask, do they have to solve a mystery or something yeah, like yeah, that? Yeah, yeah. Oh, boy. Because it turns out that one of the Marines that the, that the, the, the Marine who was killed was in in his, I don't know if platoon is the word, mm-hmm. but in his unit or whatever is from the same town and he's, uh, not a good guy. And he, he comes back, uh, and turns out he's been, uh, facilitating shipping guns. They stole from the Taliban instead of giving them to the army. He was sending them yeah. home and now they're like selling these illegal, like 
rocket launchers and stuff in in uh in in texas um near the mexican border uh and so it becomes about this big like crime it's like it's like an episode of justified yeah except instead of raylan gibbons except, you've got a boy in his yeah. belgian melanois <laughs> <laughs> solving solving this crime and it does it ends with like explosions and shootouts and like oh. people get killed in it it's, it's very stupid but it's uh this dog's awesome that actually reminds me a lot of uh so i watch uh, a lot of red letter media stuff and uh they had a mr plinkett commentary on a straight to video movie called ghost dog not and ghost dog the way of the samurai no not ghost dog cop dog oh, cop dog okay yeah ghost dog's a different thing uh and it's basically like uh this this dad is part of a, he's a cop and he's part of a canine unit and then he gets killed in line of duty and the dog goes to his family and they take care of it and then they stumble on a bunch of thieves sounds like the makers of cop dog have a lawsuit uh on their hands it would appear so if they could afford a lawyer (laughs) which i would venture to say they can't so um so that's all i had to say about max it's got a good cast thomas hayden church and lauren graham are the parents okay and um uh jay hernandez plays the um the marine who it's a small role but he's the marine who is in charge of all the dogs he's okay. like head marine head, who's, head dog marine who's the, who's the who's the bad guy marine um i think it's i i think it's i don't know who it is okay i feel like i know who it is but i don't like you'd recognize him if you saw him yeah i'm gonna i'm gonna look it up okay um but yeah i'll say this I've always been a fan of Jay Hernandez. Even I've seen him. I've seen him very. I've seen him very little. I don't know. Very few movies. Well, you know, I'm a fan of Hostel. Yes. And you know, I'm a fan of. Uh, Is he in Crazy Beautiful? Uh, yeah, Crazy okay. Beautiful. Yeah, that's a good one. Yeah. So there you go. There's two right there. Okay. There are more. Uh, he was on a show last summer called Gang Related with Terry okay. O'Quinn and the RZA. Okay. <laughs> um, that uh literally i think friend of the show aaron newworth and i are the only people who saw every episode of gang related <laughs> we talked about it at one at one WonderCon. uh anyway having any luck with this uh, with his name yeah the bad guy okay so okay so the marine who gets killed okay is robbie amel or amel he's the brother of the guy who plays arrow Stephen Amel, oh, okay. Amel, whom okay. you saw at Comic-Con last year. I did, yes. Um, you saw his abs, as I remember. Yes, yes. And it's a good thing, too, because he has no personality. <laughs> no, the bad guy is named Luke Kleintank. Oh, my. Uh, which I think is German for Little Tank. <laughs> um, and, I, yeah, he did nine episodes of Pretty Little Liars. I, I don't really know him from my... So, the, oh, so that's the name of the actor. Luke Klein tank. Okay. No, no, the, no, the bad guy's name is Tyler, which is funny. Oh, that's my every, name. Yeah. Every, like whenever something's bad going on, it's like Tyler. It's like, <laughs> or it's like, I don't, I don't think Tyler's telling the truth about his time in <laughs> Afghanistan. <laughs> uh, I wish I had a nickel for every time I heard that. Yeah. Like that time oh. I said I was in Afghanistan. It's like, you know, yeah. I don't think Tyler's telling the truth. Okay. He played a character named Elliot on gospel girl, which I'm now remembering. Okay. Anyway, uh, what did you see? Uh, next up for me was prisoners, which I have been told. I, uh, this is the Hugh Jackman Denise and uh, villain Villeneuve. Yeah. Yeah. So weird that you bring that up. Why is that? Because as we were talking about the Christian thing in movies, 
it's the first thing I thought of, and I should have said something because that would have been a great segue. <laughs> I was going to segue because I remember you told me this, about. Yeah, this yeah. is something for the listeners who maybe don't remember. I don't know if I maybe I didn't say this on mic. This is something that my uh, wife and I talked about when we, when we she was my wife at the time. She was my fiance, or maybe not even. How old is Prisoners? Twenty thirteen. 2013 so yeah we probably were uh, engaged um but you know my wife is from suburban southern california and is jewish mm-hmm. so the idea that this movie starts prisoners starts with hugh jackman hunting and saying a prayer with like a cross right yeah, is a cross on his neck i bel- i don't remember that but yeah he's saying the lord's prayer he says the lord's prayer on a hunting trip to to my wife who was that so foreign yeah to how she grew up she was like thinking from the first scene like is there something wrong with this guy or is this are we supposed to think this is a like that he's a bad guy or something well i can definitely see why she would think that like the fact that he's saying this as he's about to kill a deer or rather have his son kill a deer right but there are large numbers of americans to whom that's the most wholesome thing in the world saying a prayer before you before you hunt with your son like uh it it really does it's it's really fascinating how your people's different uh environments or upbringings can uh, affect that sort of thing well and that's the thing is like i i don't necessarily have a problem with hunting but it's something i would never do and so it is i can definitely see where she comes because they're doing something predatory right even even if somebody he thinks it's a perfectly uh, fine thing to do that's that's fine but they're doing something you know they're hunting someone something and they're going to kill that thing and um and so but what i do like about the film is that as that character goes on we see a lot of different shades to him i think it's i think hugh jackman's gr- like great in that movie um the movie itself feels like a dennis lehane novel uh-huh you saw it, right? Yeah. Okay. Uh, I, I just talked about seeing it, my fiance. Yeah, yeah. Oh, sorry. Well, <laughs> I, I I thought like maybe she was just saying it, but no, no. that's okay. Um, and uh, the acting is great all around. Jake Gyllenhaal is great. Um, it's beautiful to look at. Roger Deakins shot it. Um, there's a lot going on with the movie, and I really responded to it. It's very much it's it's up my alley. It's two and a half hours long. It really is really long. But you know what? I I I didn't necessarily I didn't feel the length. But like once it once the movie was over, I was like, what? I did I go into a time warp or something like that? Like, <laughs> well, that's good because I did feel the length because I felt like my main problem with Prisoners is that it's two and a half hours. It's really punishing and isn't worth it at the end like i don't feel like what did i just put myself through this for other than there being some amazing shot roger deakins does even for roger deakins like even by his standards it's a fantastic looking movie i know there's the part where he's driving through the rain yeah it's beautiful but also and you wouldn't think it from the type of movie that it is like compared to some of the other movies he's shot where you feel like like there's a, a grandeur to them like this is a very small film but he still gets tremendous beauty out of it you know what part i think of when i think of prisoners the first thing i think of which is the one that seems in retrospect it almost seems like it doesn't belong in the movie but the part with the snakes yeah is that's an amazing scene just on its own yeah uh and yeah also beautifully shot and acted i mean jake gyllenhaal is uh i mean this is before nightcrawler this was probably my favorite jake gyllenhaal performance even though i don't love the movie yeah they're very torn on this movie yeah it's uh I, I'll say this. Like, I really like it. Uh, listeners of More Than One Lesson have been saying I need to watch it for a long time. Uh, and I can understand why. Um, and I probably will talk about it on the, po- on the other podcast at some point. Um, 
but, uh, but by and large, like all the stuff about like, you know, a war on God and all that sort of thing. Uh, and, and like the really, really solid acting and the way it shot, like all of that really hides the inherent pulpiness of the story pretty well. I don't think it actually hides it that well. I, th- I think the pulpiness was pretty obvious well, it's to just, me. It's so, oh, what's the word? It's so like portentous, uh-huh. you know, and just so portentous, s- portentous. Okay. Uh, I think and one, it's one of so those, right? self-serious and just everything there's, it's almost operatic in its tone. Uh, that when yeah, it comes right down, down to my problem with it. Yeah. But, and I don't actually, I don't have a problem with that. Like, I'm just like, okay, you're taking like, you're taking kind of a silly story and taking it seriously and exploring the emotional ramifications of it. That's fine. It's pure Dennis Lehane, mm-hmm. which there's nothing necessarily wrong with. It reminded yeah, me of Mystic River in a lot of ways. Um, so I still responded. I responded very well to it. Uh, but I think by the time I got, if I had seen it when it came out, when people were just going nuts over it, like people thought it was just amazing. Uh, if I had seen it then I might be a bit disappointed by it. But since then I had heard that it was a little bit pulpy. I had heard that, uh, the performances were the performances and the, and the cinematography were the highlights. And that's absolutely true. Uh, but yeah, it kept me interested and it is, uh, it is rather, uh, punishing as you say. Yeah. No, Ugh, I d- what uh, they do to yeah. poor Paul Dano. Um, now I don't like to, uh, tell people's jokes without giving them credit, but I can't remember who said this on Twitter, but now you'll get this joke. Okay. Um, but someone on Twitter said the reason that Jake Gyllenhaal doesn't blink at all in Nightcrawler is because he used up all his blinks in Prisoners. <laughs> his eyes are, were over moistened. <laughs> yeah. Um, now, strictly speaking, because I, I've, I've mentioned the non-blinking in Nightcrawler, I mentioned that on more than one lesson now. He does blink in Nightcrawler, but when he's doing his, when he's like launching into his little monologues, okay. it's like, clearly he is like, I, I, I specifically looked and he blinks when he's just having casual conversations. But when he goes into his, like when the character goes into character, right. It's just okay. wide eyed. All right. Um, now I talked about, uh, this has been a good, because my top five of the year so far, it's been half a year. Mm hmm. Uh, we've already talked about two of my top five of the year so far. Interesting. Inside Out and The End of the Tour. Yeah. We're about to talk about another one. Watch out. A documentary directed by Asif Kapadia. It's called Amy. It's oh, about yeah. Amy Whitehouse. I've heard great things. Oh, my God. I can't get over it. It's so... And this is... Uh, to go back to um, something we talked about with uh, Mariah uh, on the last main episode, hmm. um, I was talking about how often documentaries about musicians that i'm already a fan of right fall short and so this is perfect for me. I, I i like amy winehouse but i mm-hmm. honestly like i could hum rehab and you know i'm no good like the i know i know half of those <laughs> okay yeah so i knew i knew two of her i think the only reason i know you know i'm no good and i actually probably know it better than rehab is because it was the theme song for secret diary of a call girl oh all uh, right which is the show that i watched for uh four seasons um all four seasons. I didn't stop. It lasted four seasons. Mm-hmm. I watched all of them. I think four, maybe five. Whatever. However long it lasted, I watched all of them. So anyway, I didn't know much about Amy Winehouse. I knew that she had a couple singles that I really liked, but I had never gone that deep on her career, and so maybe that helped. But I honestly think that it um, wouldn't have mattered. I think even if I had been an Amy Winehouse fan, uh, like a bigger fan, I still would have been affected by this because this is... Not this is going to sound like I'm like angling to get on a poster or something. If I could say this <laughs> pithily, this is not a documentary about 
a musician. This mm-hmm. is a documentary about a human being yeah. who was a singer and musician. Yeah. Um, and it's amazing how well you feel. I mean, you can, you can only know what the documentary shows you. So maybe the real Amy Winehouse was nothing like she's portrayed, but for the purposes of the movie, it's amazing how well you feel you get to know her. Um, and early on, she's like the young, cause she started as a teenager. She, she's a, she's clearly very talented. She sings very well. She has an idea of what she wants to do with her life. Uh, she's driven in that way and that's all very respectable, but she's also kind of, she's not the kind of person I would get along with <laughs> the young Amy Winehouse. Yeah. At least at first glance because she's a little, you know, she's, uh, I don't know, just, she's got, she's this sort of outgoing in a way that would probably be off putting to me. Yes. You, know? you know what I mean? Um, I guess wild is the word I'm looking for, but okay. that sounds like I'm, I don't know that sounds like the wrong sort of thing. Yeah. It sounds um, like she's, uh, exposing herself for beads. Yeah. That's not what I mean at all. Yeah. Um, and so I had a sort of distance at first, but then without changing her, even as she gets, becomes more of a troubled, uh, person, you just feel like it's, it's almost like the coworker you sit next to who you think is obnoxious for the first two months you sit next to them. But mm-hmm. the more you get to know them, you start to understand them better. You start to like them better just because you're in proximity with them all the time. Yeah. And it can go the other way too. I've had that happen too with coworkers. But, um, I just felt like by the end of the, the, the two hours, but I don't, I don't think it even is two, or maybe it's a little over two hours actually. Um, I felt like I, cared so deeply for Amy Winehouse and I felt so bad for what her, you know, what her mind was like and what the things that were troubling her and also the, the way that she was, uh, treated by not only the media, but people, you know, her, her dad who wasn't around a lot suddenly becomes a huge part of her life when she becomes famous and she, wanted her dad around and so she yeah. didn't probably you know being a young woman who had her own troubles and her own issues struggles with depression and all sorts of insecurities liked that her dad was around even though it's clear at least again the way the documentary portrays it it's right. clear that he's more interested in himself than anything else you know there's a part where she goes to you know once she's super rich and she's like getting clean and she goes to St. Lucia uh, lives in, on an island for like six months um, with some friends and bodyguards and is basically just getting clean. And then her dad is doing a, starts doing a reality show about being Amy Winehouse's dad and goes down there with this camera crew. Uh, you know, she wanted her dad around at this point in her life yeah. and here he is, he's there, but he's got a whole crew, you know? Ugh. Uh, and so I, I don't know if you've heard the stories that, you know, um, certain people agreed to be interviewed, and are in the movie, but are now saying, such as Amy Winehouse's dad, who is interviewed in the movie, uh, is now saying the movie is uh, not a true portrait of, right. of Amy, and this is, and we were you know misrepresented and all this stuff. Um, not not true. a true port. Okay, so I'm already interested because it's like no, this is not a true portrait of Amy. It's like, well, she seems to be pretty sympathetic. <laughs> You, however, <laughs> yeah, yeah, but like that's like that seems to be his attitude in microcosm. He will use her, yeah, as a smokescreen for thinking about himself, yeah. And he actually, what's what's really interesting is that he comes off, yeah, he definitely comes off the worst. Her boyfriend, then husband Blake, 
um, also comes off bad, but in a way because the movie has the movie wants you to be sympathetic towards people who are uh, prone to addiction. Right. A lot of his behavior is sort of like, yes, this is awful, but try to remember he was in he was in the same boat she right. was in, and, right. just, and he's still alive, but that doesn't mean he's a, a any more a monster than she was. Right. But like, she overdosed at one point really bad, and they were like they took her to a hotel where she could convalesce, and he like snuck heroin to her while she was in the hotel so she right. could get high again even though the doctors were like you need to stop you're if you do this again you very well could die yeah. um and so there's a gut reaction to be like what a fucking asshole but he was in the same boat she was in yeah uh it, anyway it's uh it's i didn't i didn't cry the way i did it inside out but it is an incredibly moving uh film and it really i there's there's so few documentaries in retrospect. Now I realize there are so few documentaries like you can watch a documentary, like watch a Ken Burns documentary about the Roosevelt's and you feel like I learned a lot about the Roosevelt's. You know what I mean? Yes. We will be getting to the documentary that I saw later. (laughs) That is very much like that. And I love Ken Burns and I loved the Roosevelt's, Mm -hmm. but in Amy, I don't feel like, Oh, I learned about a lot about, Amy Winehouse's life, I feel like I got to know this person. And that's, I I know I didn't, I know I never met Amy Winehouse and never will. Um, but, uh, it it really does have that feeling and that's, it's really astounding. And you know, it's again, I haven't seen the film again. I've heard nothing but rave reviews with something like this. The subject is so loaded with meaning that, in a way, it would be easy to make a movie about a, a documentary about Amy Winehouse. Like she's already gone, so it's just it, you just let's get a bunch of talking heads in there. Well, there's not and real then, quick. Okay. There's not a she had from a young age. She had a lot of friends who liked to videotape stuff. So there's a okay. lot of footage. That's great. And there's uh, I I want to just put a uh, stopper on the word talking heads because okay. there are a ton of interviews in the movie, but you never see the people being interviewed. Oh, it's great! All audio. So there's no talking heads unless there is a thing with her. There is a footage of her of Blake being interviewed, but it was sure. But that's archival thing. footage. Yeah, yeah. yeah. but uh, so a- any interview that's done for the film, you never see the person. No. It's just audio. And see, and that that's what I mean is like it sounds like they make choices that go against what the obvious choices would be. Like, one, anytime you make a movie about a, a subject who like dies tragically, an argument could be made that you're being a bit exploitative. Mm-hmm. That you're just like. It's like, all right, people have an association. We all know the tragedy. If I just tap into that even a little bit, then people are going to pay attention to my movie. But it sounds like like the filmmaker really wanted to engage with the subject as opposed to simply use the subject, um, which sounds wonderful. And I, and I know nothing about Amy Winehouse, but I do want to see the film now. Yeah, it's really great. Um, you, uh, I know we were going back and forth, but you should go ahead and do two. Cause I forgot that the next one I saw I'm on embargo. Oh, oh look at me. I'm all fancy. I saw a movie. I can't even talk about. <laughs> um, <laughs> <laughs> who would ever think that whether it be the person themselves or anybody listening i don't know just i don't know it's fascinating um moving on but no it is i i i'm i have a i have power over our listeners right now I because see. i've seen a movie that they won't yeah. even get a chance to see for two months yeah and uh i can't even tell them anything about it so i'm just going to keep this knowledge of this movie whether or not it's good you keep could, it all to myself you could say the name of the movie and i can't just, I, what, I would what's your not. opinion you don't know i, I would rather not even all right that. fair enough you're gonna tell me after right yes okay so uh so i saw prisoners in anticipation of watching 
Denis Villeneuve's okay. second film, which I believe he actually made before Prisoners, but it was released afterwards, okay. but I don't know if that's actually true, Okay, uh, which is Enemy. Which I also didn't like. I like it less. I like Prisoners more than I like Enemy. As do I. Uh, you were talking before about uh, not wanting to like feeling like, okay, well, I'm glad I don't have to write a review of this. <laughs> right. Because while there are things in Enemy that I really responded to, um, here's what it ultimately came, and I feel so bad feeling dismissive the way that I'm about to, I'll talk more about it in a moment, but this was my initial reaction. It's like, it's like, man, what are the, like this? There's a lot of spider imagery in there. I went in knowing that. Didn't know there was going to be as much, and that last shot is rough. Now, do you think... But... I'm trying to, it's been like two years now since I've seen it, I guess. Yeah. Um, I feel like when you say there's a lot of spider imagery, I feel like it's more quality of spider imagery than quantity of spider imagery. I don't yeah, know if sure. there actually being that much screen time wise. Well, it's how about just this? that it's really, really for a, film, for a film, not about spiders. <laughs> there's a lot of spider imagery. Right. Okay. Uh, for example, compared to arachnophobia, not nearly as much spider imagery, <laughs> right. um, or Spider-Man. So, uh, yeah, so I went in knowing that, and there's a lot of symbolism and all that, and I remember thinking like, like okay, that's right. So clearly, this is symbolic of something. I wonder what that is, and then and then my brain said, oh right, I don't give a shit. I don't care <laughs> right. about these characters. I don't care about this world. I am not invested one bit. So you know what? And and maybe this maybe understanding the symbolism would help me to understand to to invest a little bit more maybe but uh probably not and this is you know i tend to give myself a hard time i've said this before i give myself a hard time for being such a character guy in movies right um and i tend to get insulted when people say that i'm uh, a character like i'm a story and character guy um okay because I feel like I feel like it's I feel like it's code. It's code for go back, go and review plays. You fucking fraud. Uh-huh. That's what I usually take it as. Okay. Um, but what I will say is that I do very much stand by the idea of if you're going to make like a fantasy film or something like that, something that takes place in kind of a different world, and or something that involves like a lot of surrealism character can be a really good way to get us invested. And then you can have all this surreal, uh, surrealistic imagery you want. And that's right. fine. It can be a really good entry point for the audience. Right. And I didn't care about these characters. And I thought actually, um, I thought there were some script issues. Uh, again, well, like I need uh, maybe not even characters, but I need a, a, a foot in a reality I can relate to. Well, here's, Two things. Okay. One, speaking of different worlds, I, uh, hats off to the cinematographer Nicholas Bolduc is his name for making Toronto of all places look like a, an alien planet. Yeah, or, I like or, that a lot. Yeah, it looks like uh, it looks like Mexico in traffic. <laughs> <laughs> but I mean, the, like the towers and like the symmetry of the towers, it yeah, really yeah. does look like uh, I don't know something that, yeah. like a uh, I don't know some sort of Jules Verne vision of an yeah. alternate new world. Yeah. Um, but uh, here's what I'll say about Enemy. When you were saying about Prisoners is that where it uses its, it has all this portentous, ominous yeah. tone that's just masking a pretty pulpy yeah. story. At least it has the pulpy story. Enemy yeah. is like, I mean, luckily it's like an hour shorter yes, uh, than Prisoners. But, but it felt longer to me. <laughs> yeah, I mean, Enemy is just all 
all omen with nothing. It has no, uh, it's not anchored to anything. Yeah. Yeah. I'm glad you agree. Cause a lot of people it's, really liked them. Yeah. And, and I, I wish that I did. And frankly, I did see Richard Ayoade's film, the double first, oh, which I, I like a lot and I really responded to. And it's very similar in a lot of ways. Um, in fact, this is based on a book called the double. Um, I've been saying like you just did Ayoade for years, okay. but I heard someone recently say Iowa day. Someone, oh, okay. who actually, uh, someone who actually knows him, I think, on a oh, podcast. Right. Well, then, okay, I guess. So I, I think it's pronounced Richard Iowa Day. Iowa Day, Iowa like, Day. I owe, I owe you a day. That, thank you so much for <laughs> saying that. That will help me tremendously. Um, but yeah, and so it's. Uh, so I feel bad saying that because there's a lot of technical quality there. But again, from a script standpoint, I feel. I feel like any time a film is going to be. Um, is going to have like a lot of surrealism and stuff. They feel like, okay, well, the script doesn't matter that much. Like it does. It matters a lot. If you want us to be invested, like for example, there's a scene where one of these guys, both played by Jake Gyllenhaal, one of them is accusing the other one of like, uh, sleeping with, with his wife, but he doesn't, he may not actually, he doesn't actually think that it's sort of, he's putting on a a performance Uh there. And so he's saying like, okay, so if I were to, this is going to sound weird. If I came to you and said like, Hey, did you have sex with Jen? Uh What would you say first? No. Exactly. <laughs> you would say no. What is Jake now? I say? might not believe you, but you would lead with no. You wouldn't say, I don't know what you're talking about. You wouldn't <laughs> say you're crazy. <laughs> and it happens all the time. And it's just like, <laughs> yeah, it's like stuff like that where you're now having a character get himself into further trouble. Now, again, if he had said no and the other guy didn't believe him, which again, he he was specifically not going to believe him no matter what he said, that's fine. But have him say what any human being would say, which is no, of course not. So he's essentially essentially the non comedy version of Ben Stiller in meet the parents. It's just like, (laughs) yeah, take a second and stand up for yourself. And this whole thing could be avoided. And that character halfway through, they, they make that character. He goes from, like maybe not confident but a college professor who knows who he is Mm -hmm. into being like this weird sad sack who cannot and and by the way a guy who's pretty articulate he's a college professor and he turns into the the sad sack the minute like he's faced with someone else and so i'm like okay well maybe it's two sides of the same person maybe and then i then i remembered oh right i don't give a shit (laughs) so stop (laughs) thinking about it and I feel bad being, I don't like to be that dismissive, but it's like, you haven't put forth the effort to involve me. You're ta- you're making a movie at me and I don't like that. So, um, all right. That's um, me. go see the double everybody. I think it's on Netflix. Real one, one question about enemy. Okay. Did you jump at the end? It's a big jump. I didn't jump. Oh, I did. But, uh, I saw it in the theater though. That's the thing. I will say this at this point, like when he comes around the corner, I'm like, there's going to be something spider eight right <laughs> okay, now so like, you i didn't i didn't see it now did i expect the image i saw no <laughs> um but I, I was just like i know enough like they've been they've been building this up there's going to be payoff seems generous at this point but it's like there's going to be something uh-huh. i need to be ready for this okay. it's like okay i wasn't ready for that but i was prepared a little bit so yeah all right what's next next oh right i'm doing two next okay I saw last night, so I'm doing this out of order, by the way. Okay. Uh, last night, I, that, I... I wouldn't have known. That's true. Um, well, I just didn't want you to think that I saw the, the remaining two movies in the last day since last night. So I don't know why you want me to think, about, think that. <laughs> I wouldn't have thought... Because I have you. a job, damn it. Okay. Uh, I don't want you to think I'm sloughing off. So, um, 
<laughs> is that a saying? Sloughing? Sloughing off at work? That's what I've heard. Oh, okay. Or maybe it's sloughing. I've never heard either one. Oh, okay. Listeners, am I crazy? So I've heard slacking off. I've heard sloughing. Sloughing off. I've heard... Uh, it's like, it's like slacking and shuffling. Yeah. Freeloading. Yeah. What's the other one? Uh, the other old time you saying... Oh, oh gosh, I don't know. Carpet bagging? <laughs> that means that's a different a, thing. That's a different thing. Um, oh, it's gonna... I saw a documentary. I saw... I, yeah, and then my next two are actually going to be documentaries. I saw a documentary called The Death of Superman Lives. Oh, what happened? Exciting. Where did you see it? I saw it at the Egyptian. Okay. Friend of the show, Aaron Newworth, was there. Um, just happened to be seeing the same screening. Um, yeah, so for listeners that don't know, and I'm sure people do in general, in the late 90s, Warner Brothers was putting a lot of money and time into a Tim Burton-directed Superman movie starring Nicolas Cage. And they put a lot of money into it. They designed a lot of costumes and, and stuff like that, and they had some casting in place. And... Uh, and then it it fell apart, and many people say, well, rightfully so. Nicolas Cage, are you kidding me? <laughs> um, and what I'll say is, I, I talked with Aaron afterwards, and he and I both, I, I think everybody watching this documentary goes in expecting to be like, okay, well, we're going to watch the destruction of a movie that deserved to be destroyed. Right. What, what you, and then the film completely converts you. Um, you come away wanting so badly for this film to have existed because you see Nicolas Cage's genuine enthusiasm about the character, his understanding that he is not conventional casting for Superman. He knows it, but everybody from Tim Burton to the producers, everybody knows that like, all right, we're going to explore super so far. He's been perfect. We're going to make him a little bit, neurotic as one would assume with Nicholas Cage. Right. Um, and then some of the, like some of the designs of sets and characters looked so great and so wonderful. And, you know, for, for myself, I'll, I'll say that when I heard that, uh, Tim Burton was making an Alice in Wonderland movie, my first thought was like, yeah, of course he is. <laughs> Superman runs counter to him. Right. Yeah. And yeah. so, that so I like that I like the idea of that um and when you see some of the darkness that he would have brought to Superman it was and and something that would that would have been distinct from Batman it would have looked differently but still had that Tim Burton quality and the and the the writers that were involved obviously Kevin Smith was uh, he wrote the first script and then they brought in a guy whose name I have unfortunately forgotten but he had worked with Tim Burton on Batman Returns and then they brought in Dan Gilroy Mm. He was the last screenwriter they brought in and all of them. Everybody was invested in this movie. And even the, the producer who I think the film maybe demonizes a little bit, but, but he also has some pretty good ideas and he's invested in making this movie. Like, and by the end you're just like, this would have been, it could have been a complete mess, but it would have been a really interesting mess as opposed to like Superman returns and especially man of steel, which I just find like, yeah, all right. I don't, I don't care. Like uh-huh. you, you would not have walked away from Superman lives thinking, I don't care. You might've hated it or you might've loved it. Um, but more than anything, like this documentary does its job, which is it gets you so invested in this idea as invested as the people involved. Um, it does run a little long. It okay. feels long. Uh, like the filmmaker goes into so much detail to the point where they're even, you know, they're talking about like, 
all the different designs of the suit, which makes sense. But like they talk about the different designs of the cape and the role that the cape would play. And they get like so into it that I'm like, after a while, it's like, look, I recognize you want to explore this as much as possible. And if there was a discussion happening about the cape, then you, we want to see it. But it's like we need to move on because now it feels like you're just kind of spinning your wheels. And now we need to move on to the next aspect of this, which could be casting. It could be set design, whatever. Um, but by and large, it's a really interesting film. I believe it's coming out on Blu-ray in the next few weeks and seek it out. I've been wanting to see it. Yeah. uh, Film lovers will, will get a big kick out of it. Okay. Uh, now we're into, uh, I I did a couple of rewatches trying to rewatch more stuff. Okay. Um, I rewatched the, namesake of this podcast the battleship potemkin really um and uh i don't really have much to say about it it's still fantastic it's <laughs> yeah uh, like somehow the better the movie the less i have to say about it because like <laughs> what am i going to bring to this conversation well, especially the movie that everyone has known is good for over 100 years yeah well what year not 100 years 90 years yeah what year is it 24 i think 24 okay so maybe 91 earlier. years yeah old that's a that's a really old it's been around a while um it's fantastic and it just it doesn't, I mean, the things that I'm, uh, I feel like this is a theme we're touching on, uh, unexpectedly today, but the way that how quickly a movie moves, mm-hmm. you don't expect a silent film from 1924 to move along at a good clip. But yeah. This one really does. Yeah. That's something that gets me about Eisenstein. And then when, when I finally saw a passion of Joan of Arc and you see like what Dreyer was doing. Right. Yeah. And it's just like these edit, like, I didn't think these editing techniques were going to come around for at least another 10 years, if that. But these guys were doing this, and there is a real vitality to the way they made films. Well, and, you know, it's, it's funny you mentioned Dreyer, because we were talking months ago now about uh, Vampire, mm-hmm. his movie. And um, there's a shot in that movie that's got to be one of my favorite shots ever, uh, when um, the guy in Vampire... Have you seen Vampire? I've seen uh, scenes from it. I okay, believe. so he goes up to the hotel and in or the hotel and like there's like a tavern mm-hmm. uh, attached, like inn and tavern, and it seems to be empty. And he's looking in. He looks in the like sort of frosted glass window of the tavern, and it cuts to a shot inside the empty tavern mm-hmm. that is very slowly pushing toward the door. Even though there's no one in the tavern, the camera yeah. is very moving. Is very slowly moving. Um, that's such a sophisticated shot for <laughs> for a hundred yeah. years ago. Um, and there's tons of shots like that in Battleship Potemkin. Uh, some of them subtle like that. And some of them like, uh, everyone knows the Odessa steps sequence, but the shot that's like the dolly that's on the side looking down yeah. from the stairs, that's just dollying to the right as people are running uh, down the stairs. Yeah. It, that would be, that would be a stunning shot in a movie that comes out this year. It's, that's, it's fantastic. That's something I've become fascinated with. Uh, the more older films, the more silent films that I watch is, just because uh, th- this is kind of how I sum up my feelings and maybe it's a little too reductive. Um, just because film was in its infancy doesn't mean it wasn't being made by adults. Right. You know what I mean? Like yeah, who, yeah. Were, who were fascinated with the medium and wanted to push it as far as they could. It's not like they were just, it's not like they were thinking, well, this whole thing's new. So let's just uh, settle. Let's just settle for the fact of it being new. And that's the end, you know, like they're, yeah. they were pushing it now. And it, and you could tell like, there was an, an energy and an excitement to the way they made movies yeah. that was uh, refreshing. Even now it's, it's cutting edge even now in some way, in some ways. Um, is it my turn? Yep. All right. I saw a documentary called Ayn Rand, a sense of life. Oh, I, I'm reviewing it for the site. I've, uh, 
I didn't go seeking out a two and a half hour Ayn Rand documentary. Isn't that long? It's like two twenty. But um but yeah, uh so I've read The Fountainhead. You know, I poli- I'm politically uh, conservative and so as I've said before, it's only a matter of time before you do <laughs> that before you're like, All right, let's find out what's going on over here. Fountainhead's an interest it's an interesting book. Uh and Ayn Rand is an is a very interesting person. I'd seen a number of interviews with her, obviously because she's so firmly based in an atheistic uh, philosophy. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't agree with her in a lot of ways. And even in the implementation of her political ideas, I don't necessarily agree with her, but it's interesting. Like her stuff, the way she approaches life is fascinating, especially because it seems to run so counter to who she was as a person. Hmm. You would think that this person would be cold and calculating, and certainly her books are. Um, you would think she's somebody who scoffs at the idea of emotion. Um, but one thing that the film does, and I think it probably props her up a little bit too much and makes her look too good. I, I'm shocked. I am shocked that this film was nominated for an Oscar in like 1998, I think. Oh, wow. Um, I for Best that. Documentary. Um, because it seems like. I don't know, like there's a voiceover just talking about Ayn Rand and it just, it's, it's so straightforward and it just seems like, I don't know when, when I think of like movies like citizen four and, and documentaries like that, uh, I just think, Oh man, this is, or even I'm trying to think of like, his, like historical documentaries that cover stuff from like years ago. And I can't think of any right now, but like, I don't know. Um, the idea of just going through her life from beginning to end, here's a voiceover. Here's some interviews. Okay. The movie's over. It seems like so quaint that that movie could be nominated for an Oscar, but nonetheless, <laughs> you do come away having a really good sense of, of who she was, the role that she played in the U S and this is going to sound really strange. She loved America quite possibly more than anybody ever has or will. She came out of communist Russia having seen the damage that it did. And she came to the U.S. and started writing about the evils of communism right when people specifically didn't want to hear about it. Like, like it seems so weird now considering how anti-communist America would become. But in the 1930s, like, she, her books wouldn't be published because publishers like, we don't want to be bashing communism. Huh. Isn't that crazy? Yeah. And Hollywood wouldn't touch it. Cause they're like, and she still got jobs as screenwriters, but not like necessarily as a screenwriter, but not necessarily like with her own stuff. And then finally it started coming around and people, and like there was, you know, uh, I'm sorry to put it in this, in this way, but like the liberal academic elites, uh, sorry. Uh, they refused to believe that communist Russia was as brutal as it was. They, they assumed she was lying, um, because they, thought it was such a good idea communism because clearly you know it's the middle of the depression clearly capitalism isn't working communism is doing fine and she's like oh no it isn't uh look at all these horrible things and they're like no you're just lying uh and so like it's so that's interesting like her life is a very it's a very interesting life regardless of what you might think about her her politics and her philosophies i don't agree with a lot of them um so you know it's it's a it's a perfectly serviceable documentary it's not like it's gonna it's not like it's going to like reach out and grab you and engage you. The, what will engage you is, is her ideas and the fact that like, you know, it shows a lot of interview footage with people that, that clearly disagree with her. They're not being argumentative, but they really want to get into, they want to find the inconsistency in this belief of hers that selfishness is a good thing. 
Um, and she sticks to her guns and she's always, she always has an answer, but not in a glib way, in a way where she genuinely wants to engage with someone and she wants to convince them. She doesn't want to just be contrarian. So I don't know. She's, a, she was a very interesting woman and, uh, and the film is fine. It's getting a Blu-ray release soon. Um, and, uh, and I, ha- I was happy I saw it. Okay. Uh, final one for me, another rewatch. The great, I hadn't seen it in years, but I rewatched uh, one of the greatest movies of all time, The Texas Chainsaw Massacre. All right. And I continue, like, I, I revisit it every 10 years or so, and I forget that it's, it's like, it's a movie that is thought of as, I mean, everyone, I don't know if it's thought of as a classic. I guess it's, I mean, two horror films. Two horror, horror films, they call it a masterpiece, and they're and right. It, it is, yeah, it is yeah. a masterpiece. But I think it reminds me of, like, when I when I watch it, I think of, like, the music by like the cramps or like screaming Jay Hawkins Hawkins or stuff. Oh, yeah, like yeah. no matter how old it is, it refuses to become quaint. Like Texas yeah. Chainsaw Massacre is what? 40 years old at this point. What, yeah. Yeah. I right. Guess so, <laughs> and it's not, it hasn't, it's still like, it's still like gives me like it's, it could, that feels like this movie could give people heart attacks. It's oh, still yeah. not just from being scary. It is scary, but from being so intense in its second half, that uh, I mean, especially the last 20 to 30 minutes are just, there's barely any dialogue in the last 20 to 30 minutes. It's yeah, just like, it's just screaming, screaming. <laughs> and it's, but it doesn't get old or, uh, it, you know, it doesn't wear you out. It's just so intense. Yeah. That movie. Yeah. It's and, when I think of like the thing, like the most chilling moments in, in film, few things get me. And I know like, in a movie that features a lot of death, uh-huh. few things get me as much as Leatherface very violently closing that door. Well, that's, do, you, do you know what I'm talking about? He hits the guy with the hammer. Talk about is that we've talked on this show bef- before on this podcast before about the end of Texas Chainsaw Massacre. I think it's one of the greatest movie endings of all time. It's wonderful. Um, it really does. Like I, I like. When it was over, even though I've seen the movie before, when it was over, when I the other night, as soon as it ended, I laughed out loud just because I needed to release the tension. Oh, of course. And because it ends in situations just like, boom, like it's over and you're like, yeah. ha, ha, like I just need to do some of this. But we don't talk about the first kill in the movie is one of the greatest horror kills ever in its simplicity. Yeah. Because... It's brilliant what Toby Hooper does there because we know there's been 40, 45 minutes at this point of tension building. Yeah. We know that Kirk shouldn't go in this house. Right. But, and yet the way that Leatherface comes out, which is not, it's, he doesn't jump out. He's not yeah. stalking in the shadows and, or anything. Yeah. He's he just, investigating a noise. And he just steps out. He's seemingly eight and a half feet tall. Which yeah. It's an exaggeration, but he's enormous. Yeah. He steps out and just whacks Kirk over the head with the sledgehammer it's and then Kirk starts shaking and he whacks him again and slams the metal door. It's so quick and so casually brutal yeah. that it's again, Toby Hooper has primed us for 45 minutes to expect something. Yeah. And that ends up being shocking in a way other than what we expected. It's a brilliant thing that he does. I mean, yeah, it's shocking in the sense that like when that thing it's, it happens so quickly and again, there's just some, there's something about the fine, the violent finality of the way he slides that door shut. Yeah. I can't even begin to describe it. It is one of the most chilling things I've ever seen. Yeah. And I sit there and I've seen it several times. Uh-huh. I sit there just being like, um, <laughs> yeah, all right. 
Yeah. I guess that, ha- like, I feel like I'm in shock yeah. after that first thing. And then, and then it just gets worse from there. So, <laughs> yeah, it really does just once it launches. And I mean, <laughs> I don't think I feel bad. Or, I don't think this is a mistake, but like, the and I Franklin, the guy in the wheelchair, yeah, it's gotta be one of the most annoying characters. In the that was movies. that was the plan, yes, yeah, yeah. I mean, I feel bad that the guy in the wheelchair is so annoying, well, but but like, but even honestly, I think even the idea of us feeling bad about that, I feel like that is Toby Hooper and uh, trying to subvert expectations that, like, oh, a guy in a wheelchair, oh, is he gonna is he gonna be okay, right? And it's like he's just as annoying as the rest of them, even worse. Yeah. And so it's like that. I don't know. It's very, uh, very equal opportunity, I think. Yeah. And I also think, um, another thing just that I want to say about it before we move on, uh, and I'm trying to figure out how to word this, um, sort of like maybe like the dogma 95 movement or the, uh, non movement that people called Mumblecore, which isn't really anything. Um, I feel like, Again, because it's old, it was made so low budget, and it, and Toby Hooper was so young. It has this reputation, and people think of it as being the film of like a, a neophyte, you know, just someone a, a young Turk, just like picking mm-hmm. up a camera and and shooting something, um, sort of slapdash. And so much of it is like handheld or very basic, yeah. but then there are a few shots, including the first one of the movie. Yeah. Uh, and also the shot that goes, uh, after Kurt gets killed and Pam stands up from the swing and the shot dollies yeah. under the swing. Like, I feel like there, there are a few reminders in camera movement and framing where that's just Toby Hooper going. I know that this is a crazy, like loud, you know, uh, cheapo horror movie, but yeah. I know what I'm doing with a camera. Yeah. Like it's some really striking images. Yeah, man, that movie is good. Yeah. It's so weird. Like it's a movie I want to return to. And then the minute I do, I'm like, why did I do this? <laughs> yeah. Why would I ever come back here? Yeah. Yeah. But man, and then, uh, and by the way, like I, so I got the, I got the Blu-ray for Christmas. Um, That's it, awesome. it seems somehow, it seems somehow wrong to get that movie for Christmas. I have the old DVD, the DVD that's put out by pioneer Remember pioneer. I don't, <laughs> they make, they make like DVD players and car stereos and stuff. <laughs> oh, Oh, that pioneer. Okay. Yeah, but they put out DVDs. Oh, I don't think I knew that. Um, it's, it's the kind of DVD that doesn't even have, a, I think, I mean, it has a menu, but when you put it in the player, it starts playing right away. Yeah. Yeah. It's that old. Okay. So I do need to, upgrade well and also like the special features it has a really nice and this they brought this over from the dvd release from a few years ago but um the uh a really good making of that's very in-depth that talks to everybody about the the legacy of the film and a lot of the choices and so it's like this film was absolutely miserable to make yeah yeah no yeah i've heard interviews yeah about that all right um what's next and final i think movie wise for you i I barely have any tv to talk about either yeah i don't either um so uh as part of the recent criterion release of the uh andre gregory and wallace sean collaborations um i had already seen my dinner with andre which i love I had already seen Vanya on 42nd Street, which I love. Uh, I had not seen A Master Builder, which... The uh, most recent one. The most Just recent like one. a year and yeah, a half. Yeah, it's very recent. Um, directed by Jonathan Demme, by the way. Um, and based on a Henrik Ibsen play. And... Man, it's... these. I'm, I'm so happy they put these films together because they are all inherently theatrical in their own way. 
Vanya on 42nd Street is kind of an experiment. My Dinner with Andre is not a play, but it could be. Um, except that a play, just seeing two people sit for the whole time would be boring on stage, but when you can cut to close-ups and stuff, right. like, I don't know, it's, it's, it's so interesting that two guys sitting at a booth having a conversation would be more filmic. But anyway, that's my Dinner with Andre. A Master Builder is the most straightforward adaptation of a play. It absolutely feels like a play and there's, but again, while still being a film and just, and I think I need to familiarize myself more with Ibsen. Like I've, I've read, um, an enemy of the people, which I love. Uh, I, I've not read a doll's house, which I've heard was great, but, um, but they bring a real uncomfortable. I said the word vitality before, like, um, uh, it's very in the moment. There's a real manic energy to it. Uh, and you're trying to figure out what's going on. Um, it, in many ways it does, you know, I can absolutely understand why, uh, these guys have worked with David Mamet before when, because he's the one who did the ad- adaptation of uncle Vanya. Um, cause this feels, it has the, the energy of like a mammoth play. Um, and just the way these characters are, are sort of sparring with each other just saying things on the surface, but there's so much underneath. And what I do like, I think first and foremost is that when people think of Wallace Shawn, they'll think of princess bride, probably toy story. And that's probably it. Gossip girl. Sure. Absolutely. If, if you're me, if you're you, gossip girl. um, and thankfully not many people are you, <laughs> but, um, but they, they, like he's an actor because of his voice and the way he looks, people think like, okay, he's limited. Like there's only so much he's going to be able to do. Right. But one thing about watching all three of these films, um, and then this last one, especially you realize like, wow, he, he has tremendous emotional range. He is able, like, I, I want to see him be like a, a, a villain in something. He's kind of a villain in this actually, but like, I want to yeah. see him be an actual like superhero villain and watch him fucking dominate. Like he would be a great penguin. Oh yeah, why, you know? why hasn't that happened? I know, it's, and it just occurred to me. But uh, yeah, why did Christopher Nolan not? Well, I always, I always said like if they're if you're going to do a, a Batman movie with a penguin, you should have Paul Giamatti play him, and he would be great too. Uh, and a lot of people said they should have had Philip Seymour Hoffman. It's like, nah, he's too imposing physically. Like you need someone who seems like. Right. You need someone that is genuinely like more than meets the eye. You want somebody that looks kind of uh, runty and pathetic. Awesome. <laughs> Wallace Shawn is the penguin. Yeah. Are you kidding me? Ugh. Um, so, I'm glad you liked a master builder. I have, I actually have, have it at home as well. I haven't watched it. Um, but I was disheartened by the AV clubs review of the box set, which treated a master builder as I think in their words, the Godfather part three of the set, the one you get because it comes with the other two. You know what? I'll say this. It is that, Okay. But only the only it, the comparison holds up, but only in that way. Okay. It's not like it's, I do like the other two movies more, but this one is also interesting. And okay. this one is also engaging. Um, there was a documentary about Andrew, about Andre Gregory a couple of years ago called on Andre Gregory before and after dinner. Hmm. Um, that's awesome. You should yeah. totally see it. And it includes rehearsals for a master builder. Um, yeah, but it's really good. And it, you get, uh, it's worth it just for the, uh, you know Andre Gregory's in Demolition Man? I did not know that. Have you seen Demolition Man? I saw when I was yes, younger. But I don't really remember him because I didn't know who he was at the time. But apparently, Sylvester Stallone is a fascinating character because he's known as this brawny guy, but he has like 
intellectual yeah, yeah. tendencies and aspirations. And so Andre Gregory is in Demolition Man because Sylvester Stallone lobbied for him to be. Yeah. Um, and the director hated Andre Gregory because he couldn't do like the, he's supposed to walk down this very thin stairwell while delivering a speech. And he kept looking down at his feet to make sure he didn't fall off this thing. Cause there's yeah. no railings and the, and the, um, uh, the director was like, looks like the, uh, dinner with Andre guy can't, uh, can't hit his marks or whatever. And Andre Gregory said like in front of everyone said something like, uh, uh, yeah, well it's been 20 years and people are still talking about my dinner with Andre. Who's going to be talking about this piece of shit in 20 years. <laughs> and Sebastian Stallone goes, ha he's got a point. <laughs> uh, um, I know I just told the story, but it's still worth watching the movie to hear Andre Absolutely. Gregory tell the story. Um, all right. Um, the only things I have for TV, a couple of uh, first episodes I watched. I watched the first episode of Catastrophe on Amazon. Wait a minute. Didn't you? What? Didn't you rewatch Rear Window? No, no. My wife did. I oh, wasn't okay. home okay. Uh, when she watched it. Um, anyway, I watched the first episode of Catastrophe on Amazon, okay. which is the Rob Delaney uh, yeah. show. Um, I'm looking forward to watching more of it because it's a fantastic first episode. I didn't realize it's a British show. Hmm. I didn't, I didn't he's even. like he's like the american in the cast oh that's interesting um and the premise is he's a an american advertising exec who's on a business trip in london has a he's like there for a week he has a one week like affair with this irish woman who lives in london played by sharon horgan um and then goes back to his life have this great time they say goodbye he goes back to his life finds out she's pregnant uh, and so decides like to move to London and make a go- make a go of mm-hmm. uh, it's essentially knocked up. It's like a it's like a like a, a across the pond knocked up, right? Okay, it's essentially the same premise, I okay. guess. Um, except he's got his shit together more than uh, Seth Rogen's character did. Um, but it's full of great jokes, and you see, like they really sell Rob Delaney and Sharon Horgan s- sell the idea that these two people who barely know each other um, bond a lot through uh having a similarly caustic sense of humor nice. that's that's like what their connection is and that's how they even like when as things are getting heavy with the uh because in the pregnancy like visiting the doctor she also finds out that she is uh precancerous she oh my she doesn't this there's like a lot of it's a darkly comic like a lot of jokes about the fact that she doesn't have cancer but she very well could soon <laughs> like that's like a running joke yeah <laughs> of all things to joke about um that'll give you an idea of the yeah. s- sense of humor um you might have uh, mentioned so there's a lot of heavy stuff and okay. they're joking their way through it but in a way that like is letting you know like they feel this really heavily this is just yeah. how these people deal it's with a this. coping mechan- yeah. mechanism yeah yeah um I mean, you might have said this already and I, and I, and I missed it. Um, is Rob Delaney a creative force behind it or is he only in it? You know, I don't know actually. Okay. Um, I should look. And then the other, uh, first episode I watched and I, I wanted this to be good, um, was the new HBO show ballers. Oh, okay. Because I just want to like, uh, the rock yeah. in stuff. Um, and it's still like the, the sort of, yeah, Rob Delaney is one of the writers. Um, the, world in which ballers takes place with like super rich athletes and former athletes is a really interesting one, mm-hmm. you know, cause you've got like, um, the rock plays, I know that's not his name, but I always forget his name. Um, he plays, uh, a former, uh, sort of recently, um, retired, 
uh, football player who has through his fame gotten a job um, at a financial management firm run by Rob Cordry and okay. Rob Cordry has clearly hired him because he wants other ball players as clients. So he thinks having this former football player will help yeah. me get these famous clients. And uh, so you get to see, yeah, football players and former football players and how they deal with the money they made um, or maybe didn't make because yeah. we don't, we think of athletes as all being super rich, but there are like some, you know, work a day guys who definitely make more than I make in a year, yeah. but not enough that they could just retire and live on a. So one of the actors, uh, one of the characters played by Omar Miller, he's an actor you would recognize has been in a lot of stuff. Um, uh, he's, he's also retired and he does okay, but he needs to get a job. And that's one of that's his storyline. There's lots of interesting stuff going on, but the overall tone is just not funny and a little too broad. Hmm. So I didn't, I didn't watch the second episode. I already aired. I didn't watch it cause I didn't like the first one enough. Well, maybe it'll, maybe it'll get better. I could see that. It's okay. a good enough premise. All right. So anything uh, else for you? I did. I went back and watched the first episode. I know I'm like three episodes behind of uh, Hannibal. Oh, that's a good first episode. Yeah, it is. Eddie Izzard. Yeah. <laughs> boy, oh boy. That poor man. <laughs> poor man. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's, uh, it feels almost experimental the way the, the way it's, oh, it's shot. It's, it's 100% experimental. Yeah, I, I don't know why I said almost. Yeah, it's, but it's, I mean, we should be, the third season in, we should be used to it. But the fact, yeah, this is an NBC, like a primetime NBC drama that is, this episode is complete, not only completely nonlinear. Yeah. Most of the main characters aren't in it. Right. And it jumps through time with signifiers in black and white and color in different aspect ratios. Yeah. <laughs> it's crazy. Yeah. It's like, in a way, you can understand why NBC is like, wait, wait. <laughs> Almost like it, it kept, they kept renewing it by accident. Right. Or like, <laughs> I don't know, like, like in Office Space when, when uh, Stephen Root's character keeps getting a check right. by, <laughs> by a clerical error. Um, yeah, and so uh, I mean, I really responded to it, and I'm uh, I'm eager to watch the next one. But obviously, this is not a show that I watch while I'm working. This is a show I need to right. sit and pay yeah. attention to um, because it's so visually gorgeous. Yeah, and you know, and it's one where you want to be able to see every little movement of an actor's face because um, there's always t- a lot going be- going on behind the surface. Um, so yeah, I saw that, and then. Uh, I so all of Seinfeld is on Hulu now. So you watched it all? I watched all of it. No. <laughs> um I watched I watched three episodes and and I have seen all the episodes at this point. Um but I, I revisited some that I had seen before. And uh in the spirit of the recent uh, pa- somewhat, somewhat recent passing of Daniel Von Bargen, I went to some Kruger heavy episodes. Uh-huh. <laughs> Man, that character is so wonderful. Yeah, and he plays him so well. Like, I'm not too worried about it. That, that, yeah, I'm not too worried. Yeah, and just <laughs> and like, and there's one where uh, it's it's the the Festivus episode where George comes up with the Human Fund, <laughs> and right. uh, and then Kruger finds out later that the Human Fund doesn't exist. Uh-huh. And uh, and he just and he's in his desk. He's sitting behind his desk and he's holding up a report that accounting had sent uh-huh. him. He's like, so uh, accounting has told me that the human fund uh, doesn't exist. And George is like, he goes, uh, really? I goes, that's that's strange. Uh, uh, like I, I don't remember exactly what he says, but um, Kruger goes. He's like, well, 
it was something like George is like something like, oh, I thought it did or something like that. And then Kruger goes, well, and he flicks the, he flicks the paper in his hand. He goes, well, psh, it doesn't. And he, but he, there's no malice, not a, not a drop of malice behind what he has to say. Oh my gosh. And then, and then George says like, uh, he's like, well, uh, he goes, frankly, I did that because, uh, I don't celebrate Christmas. I celebrate Festivus. And he's like, he goes, I guess I'll probably have to try to prove that. Right. <laughs> and Kruger's like, yeah, I think probably you probably will. And just, and so Kruger <laughs> goes with him to Festivus uh-huh. and during the fe- and you may recall during the feats of strength, uh-huh. uh, when it's going to be Kramer, but Kramer leaves. And so Frank Costanza is like, who is it going to be? And Kruger pulls out a flask uh-huh. and he goes, what about George? And then takes a big <laughs> swing, <laughs> a big swing off his flask. Man, that character is so wonderful. And then um, I also watched the, the one, well, oh, the Festus episode. Yeah. That's the same with Kevin McDonald. Yeah. as Denim vest. And, uh, this is, I don't know. I, I feel like I'm not supposed to, but when Elaine gets blasted with the steam, yeah, I've always found like that's like the most attractive to the Julia Louis Dreyfus that has ever been to me for some reason. It's interesting. <laughs> I don't know why that because she looks like weirdly goth. I yes, think. yes, very much so. And so maybe apparently I have a thing for goth Julia. Lu- sorry, not Julia Lewis. Julia Lewis goth a lot. <laughs> yeah, she's gonna uh, be goth Julia Louis Dreyfus. Yeah, she, uh, like in that scene, I was like, she doesn't look too bad. Um, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> and then I also watched the one where Kramer wages war against the post office and it ends with Wilford Brimley. Yeah, that's right. Coming in Postmaster general and just, and it reminds me, this is on the, on the long list of my weird opinions, Wilford Brimley being one of the most present and in the moment actors and the most naturalistic actors in all of film history Uh is pretty high on that list as far as weird. (laughs) Um, but if you watch any movie he is in, it could be absence of malice. It could be the thing or the firm or the natural. I actually never saw the natural, uh, the Ewok movie. I did see that. Yes. And then this, he's in one scene and he comes in and just the way that he carries himself. He is just so he like, not since Jimmy Stewart, have I seen somebody so at ease in uh-huh. front of a camera <laughs> and it, it's amazing. And so just the way that he's, and the way he can be so intimidating without trying, yeah. partially because he's just a big, you know, house of a man. Um, and just the way he's like, he goes, now we got a lot of mail for you. Now you want that mail, don't you, Mr. Kramer? And just the way he, oh my gosh, he's like so benevolently malicious, if that makes sense. Um, I saw someone say, and this is the greatest idea I've ever heard. Okay. Uh, someone on Twitter said, why doesn't Hulu have a random function for all the Seinfeld episodes? Oh man. Wouldn't that be awesome to just sit back, hit random and just watch like eight Seinfeld episodes at random. That would be so great. That that would be great. Except like, I'm not, I don't love some of the early episodes. They're still fun, but like, I like it as it gets more absurd. But I also, I, I I guess more than five years ago now, I rewatched all of it. Mm -hmm. Um, and the one that like I went, oh, I totally forgot this episode existed was the one where Jerry had to rerun the race that he won when oh, he was yeah. like in middle school. And it's I still think it's just an OK episode, mm-hmm. but it has one of my favorite George. George is my favorite character. Of course. One of my favorite George lines when he has to show up at the diner and pretend that he hasn't seen Jerry since high school. Remember okay. that? Yeah. Yeah. And so he pretend and so he pretends because he's George that he's gone on to become an architect. Of course. And, uh, um, 
uh, what is he? He says something about uh, the 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 Jerry's girlfriend asked him what he's designing. Did you see the new addition to the Guggenheim? He's like, yeah, that was me. And she was like, wow, that must have uh, that must have taken a lot of work or something. He's like, eh, not as much as you think. <laughs> <laughs> like, not only is he an architect, but he's just so passively good at it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And just uh, oh, man, um, man, that show is great. And that's the thing, like whether it be Netflix or what, or Hulu or whatever, like I'm, I'm just happy that it's back and that Hulu is promoting it pretty heavily because I, I feel like, but maybe I'm wrong because you and I grew up watching it and like it heavily influenced my theory, my theory of comedy. Um, like that for that to me is like the best comedy ever, the best TV comedy ever. I, I totally agree. I 100% agree. And I also, I, cause I've been re- just happened to have rewatched a lot of episodes recently. Um, and I realized, yeah, as far as like for, forming my sense of humor mm-hmm. being a part of like the formative sense of humor, it's, I've always credited the show, but I, in rewatching recent episodes, I think I don't, I didn't tend to think of this for a while because I'm male and she's female, mm-hmm. but Julia Louis Dreyfus, so much of the way that I, that my wife and I joke with each other mm. is so <laughs> Julia Louis Dreyfus, we were watching and it's so like, just speaking of people bonding over this, it's a humor. My wife and I were watching an episode and it's the one where, um, well, it's the, the episode where, um, putty paints himself as the devil, but, uh, there's a part when Jerry and, uh, Elaine go to a funeral Okay, and they're waiting for the funeral to start and they're just sitting there and Julie Lewis goes, you know, I hate all my clothes <laughs> and my wife and I just like lost it. That's, that's so funny to both of us. Yeah, she uh, lines like that. <laughs> Wait, okay. The other one that is again very much my sense of humor when George dates the woman who looks like Jerry. Yeah, the first time they meet at the diner, they leave, and then Elaine says she looks exactly like you, and Jerry's like, "I don't think so." And Elaine's like, "Yeah, maybe she doesn't. Who cares?" <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. There is something about how much contempt the Elaine character has for yeah. everything in her life that, uh, that I really like. Um, yeah. And you know, it's, it's so just, what did you, what did you want to do with your life when you moved to New York? I don't know. Not this. <laughs> <laughs> and then what, isn't there when they're at the cockfight and she's like, it's like, I'm a grown woman at a cockfight. What am I clinging to? Um, <laughs> But uh, in in uh, the Festivus episode, uh, Jerry early on goes and uh, hits on a woman. It's the woman, the Two Face, uh-huh. um, and uh, and his his pickup line is he comes up and goes, "Hey, how you doing?" And she goes, "Fine." He goes, "Now you may not know it to look at me, but I can run really fast." Yeah, that's a classic. <laughs> just, All right, we got to stop this. We've been going I know, on too it long. Could just keep going. Yes, that's I can literally talk about Seinfeld is. all day. Yeah. Um, all right, that's it. Thanks. Bye.